0: That's Stamps.com. Code program. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.
1: Um, unsurprisingly, I suppose I should say, these are a series of inventions, four of them to be precise, and they all originated in ancient China, and all of them are considered to be, well, pretty great. I mean, there is a reason that they're called the four great inventions. The four inventions are the compass, papermaking, woodblock printing, and gunpowder. And all of them have made enormous contributions to the advancement and progression of, uh, of human civilization. And all of them share a common origin in, uh, in, in, chi- in coming from China hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Now, I suppose, you know, it's fair to say that not all of them, I mean, while they all are great inventions, some of them are great in the wonderful sense, and some of them are great in the more, you know, sort of Sauron sense, great and terrible, because not all of them are positive. Gunpowder, obviously, is the obvious one out here. Uh, uh, it's the obvious odd one out because, you know, it was a technology or still is a technology used to kill people, whereas the compass opened up the world. Paper making and printing helped to spread information through time, you know. But nonetheless, regardless of whether, you know, the, the inventions were used for good or for ill, they're all just hugely impactful, hugely impactful. And, and you know, they are also... Far from the only Chinese technolog- te- technological marvels that have influenced the the you know the shape of history, there's, there's, there's silk, there's heavy plows, uh, kites, bloody teapots, mate. You know, but uh, but these four, these four, the um, uh, you know paper. Uh, woodblock printing the compass and uh, and gunpowder these four uh, are given pride of place in conversations about chinese inventions and when it comes to their impact on global global civilization look you know without even listening to the rest of the episode i reckon you'll agree with me when i say that they are pretty bloody important anyway as ever we've got a lot a lot to get across today so let's not waste any time let's get underway here off we go with the four great inventions from ancient china let's get to it so we're going all the way back here going all the way back to um Actually, tough to say, really, and it depends on what you mean by, uh, when referring to our first great invention, the compass. It, it really means, it, it depends on what you mean by the word compass. Between the 2nd century uh, BCE and the 1st century CE, during the Han Dynasty... The magnetic compass was invented, but it wasn't used for navigation initially, right? So that the, the technology, the, the technology, the technological advancement of uh, of magnetism was discovered and put to use, but not for the uh, not for the purpose that you might have expected. The first magnetic compasses were made with lodestones. These are naturally magnetic minerals. You you might have seen them in museums. They're the sort of you know the sort of stones or whatever you can you can or bits of metal. You can um, you can chuck a paperclip on it. It'll it'll stick to it, right? And um, they come in, uh, they came in various forms, these, uh, these compasses that were built by the ancient Chinese, uh, but there were two that were quite popular. Um, in one, the lodestone would be shaped into a spoon or a ladle kind of shape with a, with a short handle and a wide bowl. And then this sort of spoon ladle thing would be put on a flat surface and it'd be able to rotate, right? And it would rotate, of course, in alignment with the, with the Earth's magnetic, magnetic poles. So you'd have the little spoon, I think it'd twist around so it was in, in alignment with the poles there. As you'd expect, we've all seen this sort of stuff happen with the compass. Um, conversely, however... Yeah, uh, rather than using a a, a a quote unquote dry compass like this, there are also wet compasses that were uh, that used lodestones that were mounted inside bits of wood. Uh, the wood was often shaped like a fish, and then that bit of wood with the lodestone inside it would be uh, would be floated in a bowl of water. And obviously, when the wood was put in the bowl, the the long thin uh, lodestone that was inside the wood would rotate it. So again, it was in alignment with the poles. And uh, therefore, you had a device that could point well—not north. Actually, these devices were made to point south. Now, obviously, it's completely arbitrary, you know, that a compass points north and not south. Compasses just point in a straight line. They, you know, they point from—they point along a, uh, you know, a fixed line of 180 degrees. Uh, they point south as much as they point north. It's just that we decided to put the arrow on the north side and the south side these days. But uh, you know given that their point is a line with two ends, they can point south as easily as they can can point north. And in ancient China, they did indeed point to the south. And this technology became known as a result as the south-pointing fish. That was the term used to describe it in, uh, in, in Chinese there. But as I say, they weren't used for navigation. They weren't used for navigation initially, not really. They'd be used instead for largely nonsense like geomatic harmonization, finding a spot to build your house or plant crops. They were used in feng, in, in feng shui, basically. It wasn't for another thousand years or so that this amazing piece of technology was used to revolutionize travel and specifically, of course, travel at sea. Before the development of the compass, seafarers would use landmarks to navigate when they were near land, but, you know, there don't tend to be a lot of landmarks on the open ocean, so it wasn't a ter- it wasn't a terribly reliable method. If you wanted to go, you know, farther away, f- farther afield, further away from the land, you could, you know, in the open ocean, you keep an eye on the flight path, the birds. You could use the stars at night. You could identify waves and currents and follow them. And these techniques were all used by Polynesians for centuries, who navigated huge, vast swaths of the of the Pacific Oath- Ocean without uh, without compasses and or, or you know, access to compass technology um and uh, alternatively some civilizations some pre-compass civilizations also used um sun compasses these are compasses that you'll be surprised to learn use the sun and its daily pass uh daily path through the sky to determine direction these were very uh th- these were used it's thought by norse navigators um the, they used these to cross the open ocean before the magnetic compass became known outside of china but there is no greater or more important invention when it comes to navigating the open ocean than the compass. And there are theories, it has to be said, there are theories about other, other civilizations independently discovering the magnetic compass, specifically Mesoamerican societies. There's potential evidence of lodestone use uh, earlier than 1000 BC, well before the Chinese, 1000 years before the Chinese were using them. Uh, but it's disputed. It's really disputed. The jury's still out. Even if ancient Mesoamericans had discovered magnetism, as as is suggested, uh, it's by no means certain they actually developed this discovery into a navigational compass. Uh, so. It may, you know, the, the artifacts that have been uncovered from these ancient ancient Mesoamerican civilizations, they may have just been used as jewelry or, 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 you know, various other purposes, not necessarily navigation. So still not sure about that. So for the time being, it is the Chinese who are credited with the invention of the magnetic compass as a navigational aid. Although I tell you what, they took their bloody time with it going from magnetism to the magnetic compass because it wasn't until sometime until the 11th century CE that Chinese sailors were definitely using uh, floating bits of lodestones uh, to aid them in navigation, allowing them to, to expand their naval reach without becoming hopelessly lost at sea. Uh, it may have been earlier than the 11th century, in fairness. Uh, there's a fair bit of ancient Chinese literature that deals with the technology of magnetism and its use, but it's not very definitive as to when it started to be used for navigation. It could have been as early as 850, uh, almost certainly underway by uh, 1050. And beyond any doubt, there's, do- there's documents, um, uh, there- there's a book published in 11... 11- uh 17 that uh, talks explicitly about south pointing needles being used on ships uh, in uh, to to navigate. So by the time we're in the 12th century it's definitely underway, but before that not 100% sure when we went from, you know, people using these bits of, you know, magnetic lodestone in in bowls of water to decide where they're going to bloody put a window in a house and um you know, when it l- took the leap from doing something that was largely useless to doing something that was obviously Enormously important to the development of civilization in, in enabling us to uh, to cross the open ocean. Anyway, after it had made this jump, uh, you know, to, to becoming a, a piece of navigational equipment, this wondrous piece of technology, it very quickly spread. Unsurprising, because you know it's being used on ships, which by their very nature are being used to sail to other places. And other places, are going, oh, geez, bloody well what's that, what's that thing you got in your ship? Bloody useful, isn't it? And then they'll pick it up and start using it themselves. Um, despite the Chinese sitting on magnetism and non-navigational compasses for a thousand years or so, once these compasses started to be used aboard ships, obviously wasn't long before other parts of the world caught on, again, because these ships are, broadly speaking, sailing to other parts of the world. By the end of the 12th century, the magnetic compasses spread from China into the Islamic and the Christian worlds, where, of course, it was an absolute game-changer. No longer were European or Arabic ships bound close to the coastline for safe journeys, and uh, this had a, a range of, of, of enormous consequences. In Europe, winter voyages didn't have to be put on hold due to you know, overwhelmingly cloudy weather that reduced access to the stars and hindered safe navigation. Uh, this increased the influence and the wealth of naval powers such as Venice, uh, who could now send trade, uh, trade convoys off all year round and reap the riches that came with them. And secondly, it made the trip from the Mediterranean into northern Europe much quicker and much safer. Sailors could cut across the Bay of Biscay and lose sight of land by using magnetic compasses, and therefore it opened up northern Europe uh, and, 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 you know, the, the, the ports and harbours there to trade from the, from the south, from, from the Mediterranean uh, in much greater numbers there. And over in the Arabic world, compasses not only expanded the range of seaborne vessels, but also were developed and improved upon by Islamic scholars for other purposes, not just navigational ones. The compass was quickly adapted to allow Muslims to to, to determine Qibla, which is the, the direction that they need to face while praying. Um, uh, Arab navigators in- invented the thirty-two point compass rose, and uh, even incorporated magnetic compasses into timekeeping devices. On top of that, you can just listen to uh, listen to. Uh, the, obviously, you know, episode 101, episode 102, history of clocks get across it there. You can learn more about timekeeping. But uh, Arab scholars at this time, they, they, you know, they took to this, uh, this new invention with, with, uh, with both hands and incorporated a range of other, uh, other devices, whatever else. And the magnetic compass, of course, it also spread uh, to Africa, where it was used by Swahili naval traders, spread into India, where, it a, where uh, the, the, the Indians also adopted the Chinese fish design, became an iconic part of their, uh, their technology there. But it wasn't finished, not by any means, of course. wasn't finished. In the coming years after this, it would be developed and improved until it resembled the device that we all know today. Uh, the dry compass, as it's known, a compass that without any water or oil or whatever you'd float a lodestone in, uh, this was further developed in Europe around the 14th century. Uh, using a pivoting lodestone needle that's mounted above a compass rose where it can rotate freely inside a little container with a glass cover. Often these are the ones that you know, you, you'll have as a kid, a dry compass there like that. You have to hold it very flat in the palm of your hand. Um, still in, in use today in, in, in many areas, but tend to be more on the casual side of things because uh, much more popular is the liquid compass which involves a disk or a, today a sphere mounted inside a container that's filled with fluid. The magnetized disk or the sphere can rotate inside the container and the liquid makes it less susceptible to, to disruption. It makes it settle faster. Um, and uh, this has also meant that they've become very become very common on ships, uh, Given the pitch and the roll of a ship's deck, a, a spherical compass is very useful in, uh, in terms of, you know, trying to keep it as steady as possible there. Uh, and also today in, in, in the modern era, used in aircraft, spherical ones in particular, as they, again, remain steady as an aircraft moves about. And there have been steady improvements to compasses like these. In the 1930s, new breakthroughs were made in their design to to protect them from damage, help them settle faster. Uh, And there have been countless improvements to the original technology over the years. But the original Chinese invention of suspending a lodestone to rotate freely, it hasn't fundamentally changed. And when you think about all the various uh, you know, hugely important historical uh, happenings and, and events and occurrences that have taken place enabled by the compass, things like European coloni- uh, you know, colonies be- being set up on the other side of the Atlantic, people being able to circumnavigate the globe, find their way across enormous, enormous stretches of open water. You know, you, you think about the, wor- the way the world became, for want of a better term, increasingly globalized due to the fact that sailors could finally leave side of the shore and, and be confident that they'd be able to find their way back. It's difficult again to understate the impact that the compasses have on on had on not only navigational technology but also just the way the world has developed and uh, and and become the uh, you know the the 21st century earth that we know today. The compass is an ancient piece of technology it one that obviously one that took a while to be properly harnessed of course, but one that has also revolutionized the way that we that were the way that we travel, the way that we interact with each other, the way that the world has, ended up being the uh, the way that it is today in allowing ships to leave the shore and take to the open ocean the compass shifted the course of world history forever and directly led to the deeply interconnected and globalized world in which we all live today paper is so overwhelmingly common today that it's difficult to recognize it for what it is it is of course technology and i think that you know it's very we're very ready to overlook the fact that paper is an invention paper is a technology it is something that i think broadly speaking we just take for granted these days but as a technology it had to be invented and since its invention it's obviously been changed and developed and improved upon until we've ended up with something that's so commonplace and ordinary we hardly we hardly think twice about it but once again we owe this technological discovery to the Chinese, to the ancient Chinese. And once again, it traces its origins back to the Han dynasty. Now, writing predates paper by thousands of years, of course. And, and before paper, people would write in all sorts of stuff that use clay or papyrus or animal skins or bones, even wood, bamboo, all sorts of stuff that's, you know been used in the pursuit of the immortalization of ideas, because that's what that's what writing is, of course. It is writing down Ideas that you know you want to last longer than just your lifetime. It's, it's the uh, it is the uh, the the ability to have information transcend human lifetimes. But uh, none of the none of the materials that were used for writing were as groundbreaking or as useful as paper. And to tell the story, we want to, we once again, of course, head back to ancient China. The traditional tale about the origin of paper, the invention of paper, involves an imperial court official whose name was Kai Lun, uh, who lived in the 1st and 2nd centuries in the Common Era CE. Um, and the story goes that Kai Lun invent, invented the modern paper-making process using plant fibres and rags and hemp and even old fishnets. Uh, using these, he created a pulp that could be flattened. And then dried into sheets of paper. Now, archaeological evidence doesn't have a huge amount of support for this as the invention of paper in ancient China. Cai Lun d- d- doubtlessly improved paper making and helped to spur on the spur this technology onto new heights. But it seems that he didn't invent it altogether. Um, ancient paper dates as far back uh, far back to the to the 2nd century BCE, before the Common Era, hundreds of years before uh, before Kailun. Uh, and there are a few other examples of paper that predates him as well. And, uh, you know, th- there's no doubt that this bloke was, was responsible for a production process that accelerated and improved the spread of paper as a technology, but he wasn't necessarily the bloke who in, uh, who invented it. Writing before, you know, the invention of paper had been, in China, had been typically done on bamboo tablets, which were bulky, unwieldy, um, or it had been done on silk, uh, which was very expensive, but as time passed, after you know, after its invention and after Kailun Lun sort of you know radically shifted the way that paper was made, paper became the main medium for writing in China. And of course, it, it didn't stop there. It was not only manufactured for writing; it's the most important use of paper. It was also manufactured for other purposes, for example, padding for delicate objects like mirrors or medical supplies. And of course, well, I mean, I say writing was the most, the most important use of paper, but people also started wiping their asses with it, you know. So, bloody brilliant invention here. Toilet paper, mate, love it. This, uh, this is something that began to emerge from around the 6th century onwards. But, I mean, look, if, we, if we're going to be honest, more important than these uses, even more important than bog roll, was, of course, the impact that the spread of paper had on literature, and literacy and a culture of writing things down books became smaller they became more convenient to read more easily transported meaning that uh, you know uh, 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 that collect- collecting personal libraries amongst the well educated was increasingly common in china and china very quickly eclipsed the rest of the world in the production of books as you can imagine but this wasn't to be the case forever Papermaking technology, like so many other good ideas that originated in this part of the world, it spread. It spread from China to other parts of the world through Central Asia by the 8th century and into both the Arab world and the Indian subcontinent after that. Before this parchment, untanned animal skin had been the main writing material throughout the Islamic world, but as paper spread, it was quickly adopted and the papermaking industry took off. It arose in all the major population centres, most famously in Samarkand in modern-day Uzbekistan. Samarkand was said to make the finest quality paper throughout all of Central Asia and the Middle East, and uh, paper merchants from Samarkand were broadly considered to be the very best. We don't have a comprehensive knowledge about paper making processes from this time or this, you know, this period, this region. Uh, obviously, it involved the pulping of various fibres, everything from plants to rags to even old bits of rope being used. But there isn't a wealth of resources on how paper was made during this period. There are some that have survived and offer a bit of insight as to how it was done. And very interestingly, one of these resources tells us that it would take twelve days to make. Just 100 sheets of paper. 12 days to make 100 sheets of paper really, really puts things in perspective every time you load, you know, a 500 page ream of paper into the old printer there. 12 days for 100 sheets of paper back then. But despite this long process, paper rapidly became the standard writing material throughout Asia, throughout the subcontinent, and of course the Middle East. And it also spread further to the Christian world in Europe. The earliest known European paper document dates back to the 11th century. It was made in Muslim Iberia, which is obviously today part of Spain and Portugal. Um, and it was Spain that was the first Christian European region to adopt paper and paper-making technology. And from there, from Spain, it spread into France, into the Low Countries, into the German-speaking world in the coming centuries And independently of this, Arab prisoners that were released in Italy brought with them their knowledge of papermaking, and so the industry also began there on the Italian peninsula as well. Papermaking spread to England, into Poland and Austria just before the end of the 15th century, and then further into Scandinavia and Russia over the next century. It was a slow, but it was a steady march, and um, once it arrived, of course, this new technology forever Upended and replaced other mediums, typically parchment. Parchment was consigned to the uh, the scrap heap of historical obsolescence, largely speaking, once paper arrived. And as the European colonization of the Americas began, papermaking also spread across the Atlantic. With this colonisation process, quickly supplanting the paper making technology that already existed there in mesoamerica America, mesoamerican cultures such as the Mayans had invented their own type of paper a, a rough fibrous material called a mate. but uh, this also went the way of parchment and, and everything else after the colombian exchange mate was it was uh, it was rough and bumpy and uh, it, it wasn't as fit for purposes as, uh, as the paper that emerged from uh, you know from. From China and was refined in uh, in the Middle East and in Europe. So it was uh, it, again quickly went the way of parchment, as I say. And uh, from this point onwards, of course, papermaking developed, uh, developed and improved as it as it spread it spread throughout the entire globe. And as the centuries passed, there were other enormous breakthroughs. No, none which was more important, of course than the harnessing of steam power that revolutionized the papermaking industry as it did so many other industries of course but steam powered machines were used to produce paper in greater amounts than ever before using wood pulp i talked about the fact that you know at one point in history even the best papermakers in the world it took them 12 days to make 100 sheets of paper and obviously between that point and you know the advent of steam technology uh, the, the process was sped up uh, considerably, quite significantly. But the advent of steam technology was, again, a game changer for paper production. And it had a range of very, very important consequences, all of which led us straight to where we are today, with paper being one of the most commonplace, uh, commonplace materials that you can, uh, you can think of here. The, with, the, with, with steam-powered machines using wood pulp uh, to, to produce huge amounts of paper... Paper now became cheap. It became commonplace. It went hand-in-hand with the development of advanced printing techniques to create a boom in the production of books and, as well, newspapers. Letter writing took off as paper became more readily accessible. More people kept diaries due to the available of cheap writing materials. And paper became a much more common and everyday uh, part of people's lives. And with paper came the information that was printed on top of it. Uh, due to the, the the explosion in book production, uh, schools now were furnished with with textbooks. Cheaply produced works of fiction were, were common. You could purchase them at a train station. This is where the term pulp fiction comes from. Cheaply made books using wood pulp. Literacy levels went hand in hand with access to cheap paper. And uh, today, you know, as you look around wherever you are right now, I'd lay that there's a fair chance you have some paper within very close reach, whether it's a a book on the shelf next to you, or a poster on a billboard nearby, or even a receipt that's in your pocket, paper is absolutely everywhere today. But it's a piece of technology that we just often we, we, we overlook it. It's too common to be remarkable. But paper was, and still remains to this day, a great human achievement, one that has helped to, as I say, pursue the immortalization of ideas. It means, it's it meant that, that, you know, the the unreliable and uh, and often highly faulty way of passing information from, you know, from, through word of mouth from, from generation to generation, instead we have an indelible and permanent, or oh, well, at least semi-permanent record of ideas that were written down long 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 before any of us were around and uh, and and of course only sped up and uh, and helped to hasten the development of things like world literacy and, and access to to information that was would otherwise be very strictly controlled by those who had access to it so it is a hugely important invention one that has had a monumental impact on modern society and it is one that also of course once again we owe to ancient china The next great invention we're going to be looking at here is woodblock printing. And uh, woodblock printing is a sort of – it's a subset of a a larger family of inventions, of course. It's a category of just printing itself. And the history of printing is something I've actually looked at doing as its own episode. But it's such a long and important topic, and there's so much to talk about there. And this podcast is, of course, you know – I mean, it's called half-ass history, isn't it? Does, does seem like a lot of work. Anyway, we might get to it one day, I suppose. We'll see. But in the meantime, here's the smaller and more digestible history of a specific time, a specific time, a specific type of printing, woodblock printing from ancient China. Much like the other great inventions, uh, woodblock printing was a game changer. Printing had been around for a while by the time that woodblock printing uh, emerged in, in in China. But previously, it had been done with stencils, clay tablets, stuff like that. Woodblock printing enabled printing to be done on textiles, things like fabric or, naturally, paper, the invention we've just finished talking about. Now, you didn't have to lug about, you know, clay tablets just to have a bit of a read. Woodblock printing enabled uh, thin, light, and and portable textiles to be turned into reading materials instead. Now, there seems to be a fair bit of dissent about exactly when woodblock printing was actually invented, which I find very interesting indeed. There are some sources that I read that indicate that it might have been a you know, it might have been around since the 3rd century CE, others point to the 6th or the 7th with a greater level of certainty, but there doesn't seem to be any strict consensus on it. Even if we don't know, when it was invented, we do certainly know where—in ancient China—with uh, with one common legend telling of us a bloke named uh, Gong Zhuanzhuang, who used a mystical jade device given to him by a supernatural entity to make letters without painting them. He was eventually executed for having this mystical jade device. The story goes, not a great result for Gong there, but he may have been—if you know—if if any part of this semi-mythical story is to be believed, he may have been the first ever actual printer with this mystical device. Um, which which could have been, of course, just a rudimentary printing implement. How much truth there is to the story is impossible to determine, but the most important part of it is that it helps to illuminate the origin story of woodblock printing, if only a little bit. Even with these rather scanty details, we do know that it originated in China within the first few centuries of the Common Era. And it was a revolutionary approach to an established technology using an implement to create many essential identical copies of the same text, pattern or picture, that's what's print- that's what printing is all about. And while people had been using, you know, various objects to uh, in the pursuit of this for years, nothing sped it up more than woodblock printing in China. It involves uh, for those of you who don't know what woodblock printing is, it involves carving an image uh, into uh, into a flat piece of wood covering the piece of wood in ink, and then pressing the wood onto a surface, usually a textile like fabric or paper. It's basically what you'd think of today as a stamp. The ink only remains on the raised bits of the carving, and as a result, only those bits are printed. But when it comes to writing specifically, because woodcut, I mean, woodblock printing, woodcuts, as they're often known today, is, uh, you know, it's, it's a form of art. People make pictures and, and illustrations. And there are plenty of examples of famous woodcuts that have been made throughout the centuries, uh, you know, that, that represent various scenes, pictures, whatever else like that. And all sorts of, you know, different advancements in printing technology has allowed greater detail, colours, all sorts of stuff to be incorporated. But we are going to focus mainly on uh woodblock printing as uh, as a writing technology and uh, when it comes to writing specifically getting the text onto the bit of wood used uh in, in the printing process was was very interesting very interesting process check this out what would happen is this a writer uh would write out the characters onto wax paper usually you know a highly trained calligrapher who would be able to do a good job of it make it look very nice these you know these chinese characters write them out all nice like this Write that out onto waxed paper so the ink wouldn't dry properly. The ink would kind of just sit on the wax paper there like that. Now, this paper, with its wet ink, would then be laid flat, right? And the piece of wood that was going to be carved would be pressed onto it. So, sort of like a reverse stamp almost, right? Now, the wood has inked characters on it that it's picked up, it's absorbed from this waxed paper. And obviously, these characters are mirrored, of course. Um, And then a carver would take this bit of wood and carve away any uninked bits of wood. This left only the raised bits as the characters to be printed, which would then have the ink applied to them. And bloody voila, you've got your woodblock ready to print. You can go online and see, you know, examples of people doing this today. As I say, woodcut, woodblock printing is is still a very popular artistic medium today. And you can see how people did it. It's absolutely fascinating to watch these highly skilled artisans do this, but they've been doing it for centuries, centuries and centuries, and once this uh, once this technology again took off, it, it rapidly rapidly led to the spread of highly accessible and increasingly cheap sources of information. It's abundantly obvious how this changed the production of writing. Instead of writers and calligraphers labouring over page after page after page, then they only have to do it once. They turn that one page into a woodcut, and then the woodcut could be used to churn out thousands of pages a day. Carved wood blocks would usually get around 25,000 prints out of them until they're unusable, at which point, you know, you'd have to start again, you have to write it over again. And again, while we don't have the most reliable timeline when it comes to how and when this technology developed, by the time we get to the 7th century, it's a well-known and well-honed technique used throughout, throughout ancient China. No longer are calligraphers and writers Spending countless hours, you know, making a single document, they can write one page and it'll be printed 25,000 times before they have to write it again. The industry was very strongly driven by religious text, uh, particularly Buddhist writings. Uh, which were considered uh, particularly important, particularly sacred, and this helped to spur on the spread of printing and, uh, and of course, contributed to the spread of the religion as well. Some of the oldest woodblock printed documents that we have are Buddhist texts. The oldest is a, a Korean document that dates back to the end of the 7th century. And, uh, I mean, you know, it, it this goes to show that woodblock printing was relatively swift to spread out of China. Korea and, and and Japan both adopted the technology very quickly, and by the 8th century, woodblock printing was common in both these places. And its impact was enormous. It, it changed the way that literature was created and consumed, particularly when it came to books. I talked a little bit about books when we were talking about paper. But uh, similar to the effect of the invention of paper, private collections of reading materials, thanks to uh, woodblock printing, these private collections, they swelled. People bought themselves newly printed documents and books which were able to be made cheaper than ever before. Publishing companies arose. They were churning out countless thousands of volumes which were snatched up by those who were wealthy enough to afford them and educated enough to read them. But it wasn't just the volume of books that changed. It was also the books themselves and the form that they took. New binding techniques were used to to bind together these printed pages rather than scrolls, which had been a more common, place, a common way to store written materials. Using, they, they used things instead like concertina bindings, which became more popular. Whirlwind bindings, a way to uh, put paper together in a way it looks a little bit like a shopping list pad. And as more time passed, we get to the 11th century, butterfly bindings was uh, was uh, was another uh, another technique that was invented. Uh, the precursor to the modern book, although with uh, alternating printed and, and blank blank page spreads. Uh, Book covers to to bind these books also greatly improved. Stiffer and thicker material was used to protect the paper. Within all these technologies, they came on the back of both woodblock printing and the availability of paper. And I said before, you know, these books were available to anyone who could afford them. And initially, you know, they they were expensive and rare luxury goods. But as time went on, the price of books plummeted. They plummeted. The technology to, to make books became more widespread, more commonly understood. And all of a sudden, owning a library wasn't purely for the obscenely wealthy, and in concert with the rise in availability of books, so too was there a rise in general literacy, even amongst the less educated, particularly in southern China, a little less so in the north. Um, and another interesting consequence here, this one, this one's very, very interesting indeed. And another interesting consequence as well, one that say, uh, really, really tickled me to find this one out, another interesting consequence um, uh, that I want to mention quickly uh, is a type of snobbery that emerged with the rise of the printed book. Handwritten books, right? As you can imagine, this makes sense. Handwritten books maintained a quite a high price even after printing took off as a luxury item. You know, this was a this was artisanal, handcrafted books that were painstakingly created by the, the most skilled calligraphers in the in in you know in the world. However. Many of the people who sought out these handwritten books, you know, these exquisite works of art, many of them considered printed books not to be real books, and that only handwritten ones counted. So it was very interesting to learn that gatekeeping has been a very real thing in human history for centuries. For centuries and centuries, it is historically verifiable that people have been gatekeeping their, you know, chosen hobbies and telling people how to like the things that they like. It is not new. It's good to know that, you know, if you went back to the Neolithic era, you'd probably find people arguing over whether you should use flint or chert for your hand axe or that the only real Neolithic tools were made of obsidian. Anyway, woodblock printing... Revolutionary invention. It ushered in a new era of information availability as books and publishers disseminated written materials en masse. And as I mentioned, it caught on throughout East Asia. It was picked up in Korea, Japan, other places, of course, improved upon in 1041 when the Chinese inventor Bi Sheng invented movable type. Rather than just one single block of wood with its characters fixed, he fired small ceramic tiles with characters on them that could be moved about. These tiles could be rearranged into any number of different configurations, offering a lot more flexibility than wood blocks. However, these ceramic tiles never caught on, despite the fact that Bi was really onto a game changer here. They never caught on. It was difficult to make them all the same size, uh, and the technology wasn't fully adopted as a result. And even though Bi also experimented with wood uh, movable type, again it proved not to be the best material. It absorbed ink. The wood grains resulted in uneven sizes of the tiles. It was it was it just it just wasn't the time for movable type here. It would go on to be an enormous step forward in the history of printing globally but it never really replaced woodblock printing in East Asia all the way through to the 19th century. And the reason for this, I mean, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons for this at least, is that East Asian languages have tens of thousands of characters, which means that you need tens of thousands of tiles, um, and movable type is just not A hugely, uh, it's not it's not hugely suited to uh, to these to these written forms. It's much more suited for Western writing systems with small alphabets like the Latin one that English uses. You only need twenty six different tiles, not you know twenty thousand. Even when the Chinese started making movable type out of metal, uh, it it didn't catch on. Believe it or not, woodblock printing again remained the dominant printing technique in China until the nineteenth century. But farther afield. Metal, movable type, it spread like wildfire through the Arabic world into Europe, where, of course, it caught on in a huge way. Movable type arrived in Europe in the mid-15th century, and it was, of course, the German Johann Gutenberg who combined it with the mechanical printing press around 1439 to come up with one of the most important inventions in the history of human civilization. Gutenberg's printing press was a completely revolutionary development in the history of printing and then in the dissemination of information. I mean, it's probably worth its own episode, to be honest. But its technological pedigree, the technological pedigree of the Gutenberg Press, led directly back to China and their invention of woodblock printing. While Europe became the epicentre of printing technology from this point onwards, China broadly stuck with its increasingly outdated woodblock technology. While some high-profile books and volumes encyclopedias were were printed with movable type in China, over the centuries, they kept going with woodblock printing for the most part. and This remained the case for hundreds of years, as I say, until the 1800s. While today we don't really use movable type or printing uh, printing techniques like that in any in any large capacity, these days we tend to use laser printing technology, which was invented in the 1970s and, and found all throughout the world today. But even laser printing itself is just the latest branch on a technology tree that can be traced directly back to ancient China and their woodblock printing. One of the many game-changing inventions in the history of the printed word. Finally, we turn our attention to the last great invention, one we've actually talked about uh, quite extensively on the podcast before, gunpowder. Now, there's a whole episode on the history of gunpowder, episode 115, get across it, so we're not going to spend too long chatting about it here today, but we'll do a quick bit of revision in case you've not listened to episode 115 for a while, or maybe even at all. Um, the origin story of the invention of gunpowder is another area, like uh, like some of the other great inventions. We're a little, little hazy, a little hazy on here, There's there's definitive evidence of its invention from 808 CE, but there's... Less certain evidence of it existing as early as the 2nd century CE. Ancient Chinese alchemists, they were, you know, bloody buggerizing around with all sorts of different substances and materials, searching for the elixir of life, obviously. Uh, When they may put together the recipe for a rudimentary type of gunpowder, and whether it was actually invented, you know, at this point or or later on, by the time we get to the 9th and the 10th centuries, gunpowder, very well known in China, where it's used for all sorts of stuff. Fireworks, of course, and obviously weaponry stick some gunpowder an arrow and shoot it you've got an incendiary arrow pack it into and pack it into a bamboo tube set it on fire chuck it at your enemy and you've got a grenade you know that sort of thing and if there's one thing that humans bloody love it is a new and exciting way to kill other humans and so as the years went on this wondrous new technology of gunpowder it spread very quickly it went east from china into japan and korea of course and west into central asia the arab world and then on into europe Around the world, it changed warfare forever. It brought about the age of guns, cannons, and other weapons based on explosives rather than based, you know, on being very sharp or something. Uh, the Islamic gunpowder empires arose and fought for supremacies. European explorers armed their westward, col- uh, you know, colonial voyages with with gunpowder weapons, and the world of war, warfare, and military conflict changed forever. Older military technology was swiftly obsoleted as gunpowder spread. Suits of armour and castle walls were no good against, you know, bloody bullets and cannonballs. And as gunpowder weapons only became more and more advanced and more efficient as time went on, even gunpowder itself was improved. It became more potent and powerful over the years. But eventually... It itself would be obsoleted by modern smokeless powder, which we confusingly also call gunpowder. The, the great invention that we're talking about here is more specifically referred to today as black powder. Smokeless powder is today; uh, it's found in today's firearms. Black powder has been relegated to a mere relic of a bygone era. But before the automatic loading mechanisms of modern firearms and 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 you know the, the powerful destructive capability of high explosives. Gunpowder was the most advanced and powerful technology when it came to the business of killing people. Sure, you know, it was used for mining and fireworks and other less harmful purposes, but overwhelmingly, this last great invention was also the deadliest. And as I mentioned, you can get a a much more detailed overview of the entire history of Gunpowder, episode 115. Sorry that this roundup is a little short, but I'm, I'm just repeating myself at this stage, so you can go back and listen to that episode if you want some more details. Just as the compass changed navigation forever, and just as papermaking and woodblock printing changed the way we access and utilize information forever, so too did gunpowder change the way that we kill each other forever. And all four of these inventions were monumental. They were earth-shaking, revolutionary changes to civilizations. Not just the technologies themselves, but also the technologies that came after them. The ones that were built upon them. They all helped to shape the modern world. Think of the ubiquity of paper, the accessibility of books and the information that has been passed down through them. Think of the fact that we've charted and mapped and explored almost every corner of this planet and a good deal of other planets besides. Think of the countless wars and the millions who died to gunpowder weaponry all for some cause or other. Each of these great inventions, paper, woodblock printing, the compass and gunpowder, each of them were instrumental in getting human human civilization to where it is today, for better or worse. Mostly for better, thanks to gunpowder. But it's almost impossible to overstate the importance of the four great inventions from ancient China. It's almost impossible to overstate the influence and the impact they have had on shaping the modern world. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story, or those are the stories, I should say, of the four great inventions. And, I mean, I always love a bit of, a, you know, a bit of history of inventions, history of science, history of technology, that sort of stuff. So if you've got topic suggestions for this sort of thing, I'd love to hear them. Uh, head to the head to the website, halfhousehistory.net, and you can send them in via the contact form there. I always love to hear from people. Sorry I don't get back to uh, get back to people, but I'd really with a volume of emails coming in each week. I just I just don't have the time to reply to everyone, but I do read every single email and I appreciate all the feedback that I get both positive and negative. So thank you so much, everyone, uh, for, for getting in touch. And uh, I also want to thank the people who support the show financially on Patreon, patreon.com slash half history, if you'd like to contribute. You can go there and get access to uh, to uncut episodes, listen to all the burps and the farts and me, you know, drinking back my water in between breaks and flubbing lines and all that sort of stuff. If you're interested in that. It's also show notes and uh, early access to episodes available there. Uh, and uh, the the on ramp to become an executive producer of the show, should you should you so choose. But you know, even if that's not for you, thanks so much anyway for listening to this dumb history podcast week in week out. And uh, the best thing you can do, of course, is just tell your mates about it, tell people about it, and get uh, get it into their ear holes as well, so uh, so more people can you know learn about the history of paper. People are craving this information, I imagine. Anyway. That is that, my friends. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being part of the show. And I'll see you back here next week for more uh, for more Half-House History nonsense. Until then, leaving you, as ever, with a question posed on Reddit. We've talked a lot about China today. And uh, Reddit user Undefinitive has a question to do with, uh, with China here. Undefinitive asks, Is China named that because of how often it breaks apart?